set things in motion that Jesus um, would give it all for the purpose of redeeming a people for yourself. And Father, how much would it be to ask us to give ours back? Take our hearts, take our lives, whatever thing, talents you've given us, may it be rendering back the church. May we have that confidence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles with you, please take them out, open them to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to begin reading at verse 17. I know I just had you stand or sit, but if you would join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, sorry. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my beloved brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give to us discernment as we consider and prepare to partake of the supper. I ask that you would open our hearts. Teach us, God, what unity in the body looks like. Teach us the powerful dynamic that's ours to live or to squander by how we love each other. And I pray, Father, that in the midst of this day, you would correct us where we need to be corrected, encourage us where we need to be encouraged, and empower us to walk out the truth that Christ is risen with everything that that means to our lives. Father, let us not take it for granted, not even for one moment. 
We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now you may be seated. We have been considering the heart of the gospel this Easter season. And this evening as we approach the Lord's table, I want to think with you about Paul's teaching on the observance that we are about to participate in. It is a somber thing to reflect that we are proclaiming the Lord's death. It's a precious thing to be sure, but a serious and earnest thing. We are called to reflect on that which we are about to undertake. The death of the Lord is the heart of the table and the heart of the gospel. And Paul gives us some things to consider as we prepare to remember. First of all, verse 17. He says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. The very first thing that Paul points out is that the church at Corinth was suffering from terminal divisiveness. <laughs> there were a lot of people in the church who could not love the rest of the body. They were always picking, they were always chewing, they were always, um, in another part of this same book he says, if you bite and devour one another, then there's nothing left. And so there was a part of the church that was always at each other. No matter what was going on, they, they were not able to have unity. And he said, it's worst of all when you come together for the Lord's table, because what you're searching for when you're supposed to be coming together is this self-exaltation that says, oh, look at me. See how holy I am. See how much better I am than this person. See how much more righteous I am, how much more precious I am. Look at me. And he says, this kind of divisiveness, he says, first of all, in part, I believe it. So what's he saying about that? He's saying, well, not all of you are that way. I, I believe that about some of you. <laughs> I don't believe that about all of you. In part, I believe it. And then he goes on to make this really remarkable statement. He says, there must be divisions among you so that those who are approved might be made known. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that even in the healthiest of churches, there is always a mixed assembly. Okay? There are always those who are genuine believers who live out the truth, who proclaim the Lord's death, not only in their observance of the table, but in how they live their lives every day. You can taste Christ on them. You can understand that the reality of who he is has impacted their lives, has changed them, has altered their behavior, altered their thinking, altered how they interact with the world. But if those are there, then it also stands to reason that among the genuine believers, there are false professors. There are those who say they belong to Christ, those who give lip service to it. They may be very religious people. They may be the most faithful attenders of any church, and yet their hearts have never been transformed. Their lives show no flavor of Christ. There is no genuine reality of who He is evident in them. There are also going to be new Converts who don't know what things are supposed to look like, and they're watching some of you and some people in the church and saying, oh, that's what I want to be, that's, that's beautiful. And they're watching others and thinking to themselves, well, that looks just like the world I just came out of, and I'm not sure what to think anymore. And then there are those in the church who are not believers at all and very open about the fact that they're not believers, and their conduct 
sometimes comes into the church and it might change the dynamic of the church and how a church interacts with them and how a church responds to them, how a church actually communicates Christ to them is important for a church to think through and to engage with. There are divisions among you, Paul says. And he says, I believe it. It is true that for many, that reality is a very difficult thing to be aware of. So what do we do with that? First of all, be on your guard against anyone who would seek to divide you against anybody else in the church. Okay? Be on your guard. Watch out for the person who is seeking only to drag somebody else down so they might feel better about themselves. And and understand that there is an obligation of those who belong to Christ to be constantly examining their lives and constantly examining their mind and their heart and their everything and applying Christ to every single part of our lives. Because here's the reality. You just might have a problem with somebody in the church, and it just might be a real problem. Okay? How you deal with that problem says more about your soul than it does about their behavior. That make sense? If you can't deal with your problems with somebody in the church in a way that honors Christ, instead of in a way that acts exactly like the rest of the world, then you're confessing something about your soul which may not be something you want to confess. Amen? You hearing me? We need to be examining ourselves about how we deal with the things that are going on in our lives. So the second thing that Paul points out is this. He says, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat or drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So culturally, this needs a little definition. First of all, this is not live wine. (laughs) Clearly, when they gathered together, it was, because people don't get drunk on grape juice, okay? Also, you're going to get a very small piece of cracker, (laughs) gluten-free, by the way. (laughs) Across the board, you need to know that, because we got people in here that can't handle gluten. So we have gluten-free matzah. Kind of cool. I digress. What was going on in Corinth? What would the practice of the ancient church was that when they gathered for the Lord's Supper, they would gather together and it would not only involve a remembrance of the Lord's Supper, it would actually be a great love feast, a fellowship dinner, a time when the church was supposed to share bread, share a meal, share life together. And this went on at almost every gathering of the church. So we think that sometimes creating meals for a fellowship dinner a couple of times a month can be awkward. They did it every time they were together. But the problem that they were having was they would sort of distribute the food and distribute the the service and the preference in rank according to apparently income, apparently the the upper social strata, the people who thought more of themselves, who, who maybe the rest of the people thought more of them, They had first dibs, and they would go through the line, and they would get everything, and there would be nothing left for others. There's this idea that that I am who I am, and therefore I deserve honor. 
So I'm going to make sure that I get the honor that I think I deserve. Now, if we think about how Christ spoke to us about humility and giving the preference to others instead of demanding it for ourselves, we might see that this is a little bit upside down. Now, the thing to keep in mind is that although we don't observe the Lord's table this way, right? We don't have a love feast with our observance of the Lord's Supper. There are a lot of other ways in which that same temptation is present in a church today. There are lots of opportunities in which we might approach our interaction with other people in such a way that we communicate, maybe intentionally, maybe not intentionally, maybe subtly, maybe not so subtly, I deserve your honor. Honor me. Right? And if that's your messaging, if that's your heart, if that's your mind, if that's your intention, you've missed something fundamental about what Jesus Christ taught about what it was to be a follower of his. You see, nobody can demand honor. Honor is something that is earned and given freely, or it is not honor. Okay? If it's not given freely, it's, it's just been forced. <laughs> It's demanded. It's, it's somebody holding a gun to your head and saying, say these words or I'm going to hurt you. That, that's the kind of thing that goes on in many churches. And it may not be a physical gun, but we understand that somebody who sets themselves out or has some power in a group can make life miserable for a lot of other people. And so we want to pay attention to the things that we're demanding of others. The idea says this. We want to make sure that we're conscious of the fact that nobody, and I mean nobody, has the right to demand that anybody else honor them. Okay? We can't. First of all, Jesus said those that want to be first, those that would be greatest among you, should do what? They should be the servant of all. They should be last. They should make sure that they are the ones at the bottom, not the ones scrambling to get at the top. So we want to make sure that we're approaching the whole idea of, of how we are obeying Christ and the honor that goes with obeying Christ faithfully. That should be something that is given by others freely, not something that is demanded. Okay? We want to make sure of this because it creates a problem in a church, so much so that when Paul wrote this letter, this was a huge issue. And he says very plainly, you're, you're not even observing the Lord's Supper. In other words, your religious practices that you are engaged in, they're not what you think they are. So we can divorce it at least momentarily from the table and think about how might this look in a church today? Well, a church that's filled with people that are saying, honor me, honor me, honor me, though they may come together to worship, worship is not happening. Because at the center of their observance is them instead of Christ. Okay? We need to check our hearts. We need to examine ourselves, and we need to be willing to say, okay, I'm, I'm a little bit upside down here. I need to repent. I need to turn away from this desire to seek my own honor, and I need to seek the honor of Christ so that I am not in any way putting myself ahead of Him. Because what you do in practice gives testimony to what you actually believe. You can say you believe something. 
But I don't really care what you say you believe. I care what you do. Because what you do communicates to me the truth about what you actually believe. Amen? So, failure to yield defiles the whole. That's what Paul says here. If you're seeking your own instead of honoring somebody else, that behavior has a defiling effect on the entire body. It has a, a corrupting influence over the whole assembly. And, and you, can, you can figure out pretty quickly when you walk into a church whether or not the, the members of that body are seeking to exalt Christ or seeking to exalt self. Right? I, I've seen it played out in, in really strange ways. I've seen it played out over somebody sitting in my chair. Right? It sounds funny. We usually have our comfortable places where we like to sit, but they're sitting in my chair. Make them move. I've seen that happen. I, I've seen churches where, where, where they, would, they would put somebody's name on the back of a pew because they, they donated money or something. I don't know. But, but there it was. It was their pew. Their name was on it. That was their seat. Well, okay. But what does that communicate to somebody coming in about what's really important? Is it Christ? Or is it, hey, look at me. Look what I did. It, it's a touchy line to walk because I know that, that sometimes there is a, a very genuine desire to honor somebody who is gone with a memorial. And we want to give memorials for something and we want to commemorate somebody. But at the same time, we don't want to set them out above Christ. So in practice, we need to think this through. We need to be cautious about this. We need to be attentive to what are we actually messaging? What are we actually saying? How are we actually putting the scripture to work? Because in the end, remember, the Lord's Supper is the ordinance that we observe. But it didn't take place in a vacuum. Right? It, it took place in the midst of an entire evening. And there was a great amount of teaching that Jesus did, which is given to us in the Gospel of John, about how the disciples were to live, about how they were to love each other, about how they were to put themselves last and honor others. And there was this really amazing thing that some Baptists believe is an ordinance. I don't think they're right, but it's worth considering. Turn me to John chapter 13. We'll come back to 1 Corinthians in a minute here. John chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world, unto the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. There's a kind of an overarching statement. He loved them to the end. He loved them with everything that he was. And the supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. So what's, what's the context in Jesus' mind? 
Is, is he looking at himself and going, I don't have any right or power to demand anything from anybody? What's the context here? He knows that all authority has been given into his hand. He's God made flesh, right? That's the defining context here. So keep that in your mind. He rose from the supper, he laid aside his garments, he took a towel, and he girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin, into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel with which he was girded. Again, this needs some cultural explanation. This was the job for the lowest slave in a household. Most of the, the society in that day walked every place they went. Those who didn't walk or those who had large burdens to bear trafficked on the same streets where people walked with animals either riding or pulling carts. Animals have this incredibly obnoxious habit of leaving their mark on the road where they walk. People tended to walk in that stuff. Okay? They weren't wearing nice closed-toed shoes. They were wearing sandals that were basically a piece of leather with some thongs holding them to the bottom of the feet to protect the bottom of the feet if they wore shoes at all. Feet were nasty. Okay? And the washing of feet was an honor that was given to a guest, but it was such a nasty chore to be done, they chose the lowest, most in trouble slave they had and said, you do it. I ain't touching those feet. I know where they've been. Okay? And Jesus said, watch me. And he took off his robe and he girded himself with a towel and he began to wash his disciples' feet. When he came to Simon Peter, Peter said, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. In other words, no, you, you deserve honor. I'm not going to let you do this. And Jesus answered him and said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet and is completely clean. But you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, and therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, Do you, not, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So this is the context of the Lord's Supper. It is consistent with the whole tenor of Scripture about humility and service. It is consistent with the scriptural teaching that none of us deserve anything but hell. And it is consistent with the fact that the world sees things and does things exactly opposite of how God calls his children to act. How does the world expect leaders to act? How does, world, how does the world expect the people on top to behave? 
right? The world expects the people on top to be served by everybody, to be bowed down to, to be kowtowed to, to, to be honored and honored and honored. And so the more people you have telling you how wonderful you are and bending over backwards to do every little thing for you, then the better you can feel about yourself in the view of the world. But what the Scripture tells us is that followers of Christ should see that picture completely upside down. We should see that those who are greatest among us are the greatest servants. That those who would be honored by God and honored in in understanding that they're walking in grace by their fellow believers should be the people that are willing to put their hand to any plow, to do anything that needs to be done, to set themselves to serve rather than to be served. They should never seek to be noticed. They should never seek to be admired. They should actually never seek that anybody should even know what they've done. They should serve quietly. They should serve in the background. And they should serve so well that the people who they serve know not only that they have been served, but that they have been loved. Because this is the context that Jesus put this whole conversation into. Right? This is how he said we were to live out obedience to him. And this brings us back full circle to what we are proclaiming. What did Paul say? As often as you drink this cup and eat this bread, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what are we proclaiming when we're observing the Lord's table? What are we proclaiming when we're living out Christ to the best of our ability? We're proclaiming the death, burial, and resurrection of the God who not only made us, but chose to come and save us. Who set aside his glory, according to Paul in Philippians, right? He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be clung to. But he made himself of no reputation, taking on the likeness of a slave, submitting to a death, even the death of a cross. This is what we're proclaiming. We're proclaiming the fact that God himself not only died in our place, but has done every single thing required to make us His own. He has brought life into dead flesh. He has awakened dead spirits and made us live. He has given us a repentant heart. He he has done all that is needful so that we would be His. When we observe the Lord's Supper, and when we just live out Christ, we are proclaiming who He is. So is that consistent with with saying, honor me? Or is it consistent with saying, pay no attention to me and honor the Christ? Right? This is the dynamic that's in play. And this is absolutely important for us to get, because Christ was the firstborn over all creation, and yet he died sacrificing himself for those who neither deserved nor desired that he would do so. Because, honestly, how many times do we find our service of others short-circuited by the fact we may start out with good intentions? I desire to serve. I desire to, to be humble in the background. But a part of me wants you to recognize it. And when that goes on long enough that I'm not recognized, what happens to my attitude? It becomes bitter. It becomes corrupted. The taint of my flesh begins to show through. Amen? 
You see, see, this is the dynamic that we need to be conscious of. Because we proclaim the fact that Christ lived and died in our place. And the horror of the fact and the reality of his willingness to do this should never be far from our minds. What he underwent, the death that he died, the enduring of hell in our place, it should be something that we never let out of our consciousness. It should always be a part of us. And it should shape and inform everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we are. It is the mark of what it is to belong to him, to be counted as his. Because in the end, how many of our very worst sins are rooted in the idea that we deserve something better than we have? How many marriages do you know that are ended because one person or the other thought to themselves, I deserve better than this one. I should be treated better than I'm being treated. I deserve something. What do you deserve? You deserve hell. Don't lose sight of that. Because whatever you might be enduring in this life, I promise you, It's better than what you deserve. (laughs) See, at the bottom of it, what we need to remember is that our darkest moments stem from that root, right? Our hardest fights, our most difficult entanglements, they stem from the root of our selfish nature. They stem from our desire to be more than we are. The worst part of this whole story is found in the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. He deemed that he deserved better than he had. He deserved a Lord that would do what he was told to do. And John tells us that Judas was a thief, that he was used to dipping into the money box. And so in the end, whatever was going on in Judas's mind at the time, 30 pieces of silver was a fairly small price for which to sell your Lord. But he wanted what he wanted. And in his mind, he deserved what he thought he wanted. He sought after something other than Christ. It's why Paul gives us the warning about eating and drinking without discerning the Lord's body. Isn't that what Judas did? He didn't discern why Christ was there. He didn't discern what Christ came to do. He didn't consider the testimony of everything that Jesus had given about his own mission, about his own purpose, about his own life, about his own calling, about his own ministry. He didn't give himself to Christ in any way that honored Christ. He was willing to follow Christ as long as he could be seen as the member in the inner circle of the rock star who was going to put himself on the throne of David. That part Judas could be down with. But when Jesus started talking about taking up your cross and following after me, when Jesus started talking about dying, Judas didn't want any part of that. He didn't want any piece of the Christ who called him to die to self. And this part, 
This part of the story is so important that we get our heads around because there are real consequences for those who insist on using the things of God to satisfy their own selfish urges. What does Paul say? You've approached the Lord's table without discerning the body of Christ. For this reason, many among you are sick and ill, and many sleep. You know that sleep is a euphemism for dead, right? So what's he saying? He's saying your abuse of this ordinance and your abuse of the Christ in your life is one of the reasons why God is chastening you with physical illness and death among some of your members. Say, would God really do that? Well, Paul says yes. Why? Because the testimony that we're giving about Christ is more important than any temporal reality. Look, consider it like this. Let's presume for a moment that Paul was talking to primarily Christians. Okay? And he's telling them, look, the Lord has chastened this body by removing from your midst some of the worst offenders. He's actually killed them. Have they been ultimately harmed by that chastening that the Lord gave if they belong to Christ? No. They, they lost out on opportunity to serve. They lost out on opportunity to honor Christ. The church might miss them. The church might not. But they, they haven't truly been harmed if they belong to Christ. Okay? We need to remember that for a believer, there are worse things than death. We need to remember that for a believer, there are things worse than just leaving this life. So when we read this passage and we think about this, we need to ask ourselves, would God really do this? Well, His honor is more important to Him than your life. His glory is more important to Him than your happiness and well-being if you will not obey. Okay? God calls us to walk in obedience. And He tells us plainly there are very real, very practical, very concrete consequences for refusing obedience when He calls us to obey. And this is not something that can be glossed over. This is not something that can be ignored. This is not something that is just, well, that doesn't really matter anymore. So let's get right down to it. What does it mean to discern the Lord's body and blood? What's he telling us to do? Well, first of all, it is to understand the truth about who you are and who he is. At the heart of it all, it is to recognize the fact that what we do here in this moment and what we do in how we live out Christ conveys a relationship that we have with Christ that says, I am not God and I know it. You are God and we both know it. You are the boss, I am the slave, and that's the way I want to live my life. 
It is to convey the truth about that understanding. And it is to say to him that we would never have come to him. We would never have found him unless he had been seeking for us. Right? John tells us in 1 John, we love him because he first loved us. He calls us to life. He makes us his own. And so to discern the body and the blood of the Lord is to put him in the right place in your thinking. It is to set your life and set your mind to say, no matter what else goes on, I'm going to seek to give to Christ the full honor that he deserves. Not only in this moment, but in the moment down the street when I encounter the guy that makes me angry. Not only in this instance, but two hours from now when things don't go my way. Am I setting myself to discern the body and the blood of Christ? Because what I do here is a lie if I don't do it there. Okay? You understand how this is connected? If I don't discern his body in my life, then I can't accurately discern his body in my practice of the Lord's table. Those two things are essentially connected. They must be. Because all of the Christian life is essentially connected. There is no part of our life or our practice that exists in a vacuum. The guy that cuts you off in traffic, that gets the bad word and the finger that doesn't belong in the air, gives evidence to what you really love. You love yourself. You want what you want. And what you wanted was where he is. <laughs> right? Your inability to be patient with people. Your inability to just wait. Your inability to set self aside and honor somebody, whether they deserve the most honor you might ever imagine or not. To, to, to live this out is to give to others more honor than you seek for yourself. That's what it is to discern the body and the blood of Christ, at least in part. It is to understand that life and death are out of your hands. That God is the one who has ordained not only the number of your days, but the flavor of your days. Okay? The life that you're in is the will and the purpose of God. That is an always true statement. The things that are in your life right now have been ordained before the foundations of the world, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 1. God has ordered all things according to the counsel of his eternal will. Okay, There are no accidents. And things may not be the way that you want them to be right now. But they are precisely the way that God has planned them to be. And God has planned them to be precisely how they are for a purpose that exceeds our understanding. So to discern the Lord's body and blood in how we process that says this. God, I don't get what's going on here. But give me the grace to hang closely to you. So when I come to the table, I'm not dragging with me mountains and mountains of baggage for all the times I messed it up before I got here. We'll get to the practicum in just a minute. It is to understand that Jesus died for your sin, not his own. 
right? That, that's really basic, but it needs to be said. To discern the body and blood of the Lord is to say in your heart and say in your mind that what Jesus did, he did for me. If it was his own that he had to deal with, he wouldn't have come. Right? It's fairly obvious. It's fairly self-evident. But it's important that we process that through because it leaves us culpable when we come here. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. What's implied in that statement? Broken for your sin. Broken for your rebellion. Broken for your refusal to obey your God. This is my blood poured out as a sacrifice to wash the sins of my people away. This is the new covenant of my blood. The new agreement between you and God takes place. It's rooted. It's founded. It's anchored. Its life is in the death of Jesus. You can't be a follower of Christ apart from His death. You cannot be a follower of Christ apart from His blood. You cannot be a follower of Christ apart from that covenant being a real thing in your life. This is why we know without question scripturally that God is not a salesman of insurance. He does not sell hell insurance. Okay, He calls His children to come to Him. He enables them to come. He saves them by His grace. Which means that when we call Him Lord, we are acknowledging, confessing, and aiming ourselves at obedience to His instructions. That's what the word Lord means. That's what it is to discern the body and the blood of Jesus. And it is to understand that while nothing we do here is magic, okay? I bought the matzah today from the grocery store. I opened the plastic container of grape juice. I'm not going to be able to bless it in some magical way to make it something more than basic elements, okay? But there is something profoundly powerful about the taking of this into our bodies and the mental awareness that this represents the body and the blood of Jesus. That we take Him in some way that we don't fully understand. There's something visceral about this. Something potent. Something real. So practicum. If you have something to confess, confess it. If you have something to repent of, repent of it. If you have a relationship that is damaged by some sin, yours or theirs, do what is necessary to restore it. If you have any doubt whatsoever about taking of the Lord's table, then you owe it to yourself and to your Lord to rectify it before you do. And maybe you can rectify it just on your knees before God. But it might require rectification by going and talking to a real person who might actually be here. 
I'm going to pray, and I'm going to turn off the tape, and I'm going to turn off the video, so goodbye YouTube or Facebook, so that we have some in-house privacy. If you have any business to deal with, at the very least, seek the face of your God before we approach the table. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would give to us grace to consider these things that we are about to do with depth and with power. I pray, Lord, that in the midst of all that we do and all that we are, that we would be authentic, that we would be genuine, that our lives and our practice and our witness and our testimony would be exactly true according to your word. Father, I pray that you would not allow any influence from the evil one to ever mar this church. God, if that means that you take me out, then take me out. I pray, Father, that in the midst of all that we do as a body, we would live in a way that brings glory to the risen Christ. I pray, Father, that our hearts and our minds and our lives would be completely and entirely consistent with your word. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'll keep your heads bowed, grant privacy to anybody that has anything they need to do.